What do you call a pile of kittens? A mountain. Never criticize someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you'll be a mile away and you'll have their shoes. <laughs> I'll stop there. We'll just we'll stop where it's good. Okay, so we're going to start, and I think I probably do this almost every series, in the beginning, in uh, Genesis, and this is a new series. Um, we made it through Hebrews. All of you guys are stellar journeymen with me through Hebrews. And uh, we're going to start in Genesis 1, 26 or 28. And uh, this is, uh, like you guys know, the Holy Spirit will uh, tell me what to study. Uh, sometimes it's a themed study like this one's going to be. Other times it's uh, on a book um, in the Bible. And uh, I'm excited about this because for years I've wanted to study the way of kings. And I want to get the good, the bad, and the ugly because... We can learn from the bad and the ugly, right? But the good we want to take and uh, and see, almost like use the the way of kings and their lives as a way to detect any fault lines in your foundation. Because if you look at kings, kings uh, are builders. They're also uh, expansion experts, I guess you would say, right? their influence is to go out into their kingdom and it's amazing how when you look back at their lives tiny little decisions or overlooking something typically leads to their downfall and uh, so I'm not going to get into Saul and I'm not going to get into David uh, I'll probably do a study on David's life in particular because he's about the closest we can get to as far as uh, the present-centered um, worship and rule of a king. Uh, Saul was a disaster. Uh, but Solomon, Solomon, I want you to keep in mind, is probably the top Old Testament uh, figure, uh, I hate to say character, person that almost... like. He, he brought heaven to earth. I mean, if you think about it, they had no adversary. They had no desolation. They had no enemies. They had such prosperity that silver was piled in the streets because it was basically worthless because there was so much of it. I mean, the walls of the temple were lined with gold, you know. And uh, so he is a picture of that, which I'm going to show you in the scriptures. But here's the thing, if he had it under an inferior covenant, then how much more should we be able to transform our cities, transform our states, transform our country by using wisdom? See, that's what brings the kingdom of heaven into practical life. One thing that irritates me about charismatic Christians is it's all about the feel-good. Like the anointing is for us to play around in, you know, like you might water out on the street or something, have some, 
you know, good times, but we never take the anointing out into a physical manifestation that's practical. You know, you don't have to be weird to impact your city. We can be very practical and pragmatic people just like the Lord, just like Paul, while also healing the sick, casting out devils, speaking in new tongues. We can do all of that, but we've got to have the wisdom that's necessary to translate that into society. Does that make sense? Because we rely too much on revival and we think that's actually going to save society. That will not save society. We've already proved that over and over again. It's going to take a systematic approach and we can learn a lot about that from the way of kings, right? But I want to go back to God's original intent for rule. That's going to be very important. I'm going to get into some interesting stuff. So if you have questions, write them down and we'll answer them at the end. If you have thoughts, go ahead and share, but any questions or things like that, we'll address when we're done. Okay, so in uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it says, Then God said, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, uh, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, now we've read this over and over. I mean, it's like the first thing you learn in Sunday school, you know, the creation story. But I want to break it down, and I want to go into the original language. So the word God, uh, where it says, Then God said, Let us make man. And as you go throughout you know, all of the Bible, you see the word God. That is often the word Elohim in the Hebrew. Now, it's a plural word, okay? And it means God, gods, judges, angels. Often you'll see it, Lord God, which is God paired with Yahweh. The word Elohim is a pretty generic term, okay? And uh, it refers to, um, uh, again, gods and gods, and also can refer to gods as in people worshipped other gods or other Elohims. It can also refer to divine beings, whether uh, typically you know, heavenly beings. Uh, angels could even fall into that uh, realm as well. Now, for some scholars, the phrase, let us, they uh, believe refers to the Trinity. I agree, but I think it goes beyond that, and I'm going to show it to you. Now, in uh, Psalm 82, I want to go ahead and get over there and lay this foundation, and then we're going to get into how it applies to us by the end of this message. But in Psalm uh, 82, we're going to actually read verses 1 through 8. And I like the English Standard Version for this reason and uh, how they translate Elohim into gods because some of the other translations uh, translate it into saints and they refer to Israel, but this has nothing to do with Israel because it's way before Israel existed. So in uh, Psalm 82, 1 through 8, it says, God 
has taken his place in the divine council. That phrase is going to be very important. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now you might think that's referring to humans, right? Because we should uh, not show partiality. We should give justice to the weak and the fatherless. But then verse 6 blows that idea out of the water when it says, I said you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Okay, so you could say, well, if God's Elohim means judges, maybe he's referring to earthly judges. Yet, sons of the Most High in the Old Testament always refers to divine beings. It never refers to a human, ever. And so it would refer to maybe what we would call angels, but angels or an angel is actually a function. It's not a type of heavenly being. You have cherubim, you have seraphim, uh, you have the uh, living creatures, but angel is a function or a messenger. So that's why in the book of Revelation where he says, Talk, say to the angel over the church of, he may be speaking to a divine being, but he's more than likely probably speaking to that uh, earthly ruler or what we'd call a pastor. Although I'm not sure that's the case as far as pastors. But anyway, but the other thing here is like men, you shall die. If he was referring to men, why would he say like men you will die? So he's referring to beings in his divine counsel. Now, if you really want to dig into this, I recommend the scholar Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R, right? H-E-I, I think. He goes all into this. He's a, a scholar on ancient languages, uh, so he knows those languages and he knows what um, a lot of this uh, is referring to. Um, but what's important to understand is this passage is tied to the nations because he says you will inherit all the nations. So in heaven, there is a divine council. And God presides over this divine council. And I'll show you some more scriptures in a minute. Uh, but in this divine council, he assigned certain beings over the nations. And Jewish thought, including Paul, was that there were 70 beings that were assigned to 70 nations, which is why the... Uh, the amount of disciples a true rabbi needed to have was 70. Okay, so all of that's tied to this idea of a divine council. And their job was to steward nations well. But instead, people began to worship these divine beings. They received it. And instead of promoting justice over nations, they promoted wickedness. So it's like you've got in Ephesians 6, um, it might be 11 through 12 or something, where it talks about principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, 
and then a host of wickedness. Okay, so the rulers, powers, and principalities are demonic beings that reside over regions, nations, uh, states, cities, okay? And their influence goes out into the atmosphere, if you want to call it, and that's why some cities have a high drug use. Some cities have high poverty rates. Some cities have high pride. You have a lot of pride, elitism, things like that. I can guarantee you there's a lot over Washington, D.C. And so that's you'll see like patterns in certain cities, and typically there is an influence there, not to mention poor choices by leaders. But here's the thing. The principalities of powers, these rulers will seek to influence the person that is over that city, that state, that county, that region, while we're just trying to get one person saved. You think that's the reason he always says, you know, and the king was good and the people prospered. And the oh, king absolutely. Was evil and the people. Absolutely. Because whoever is on top of the mountain has the greatest influence. So if their heart is correct, they're going to bring good things. If their heart is evil, they're going to introduce really, really bad things. And so that's why a Christian's number one goal should be mountains and those that are on them, not trying to bring them over to the church mountain, but the church mountain needs to go and invade all the seven mountains of society. So Lance Wall now has tons of stuff on that. Instead, we abdicate our role. The primary vehicle, and if you don't believe me, just look on TV. The primary vehicle is the marketplace. The marketplace consists of business owners and government leaders. Okay? So if you got business owners and government leaders who believe in Jesus Christ, then they can begin to influence on the mountaintops and a nation can be saved. Right? Can it be saved in a day? Well, we might need it. We might need to be saved in a day at the rate we're going. So anyway, there's a divine council. Their job was to rule the nations well. They sucked at it. Right? So he's saying, you're going to be judged for this. You're going to die like men, and you're going to fall like any earthly prince. Okay? And then God will inherit the nations. Well, what's interesting is Jesus, is it Psalm 2? Let's just look back. I'm not sure this is in my notes. I think it's Psalm 2. Yeah, let's read that. I might be getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me make sure I'm not... Well, why on earth did I not have this psalm in here? Okay, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in them. 
the main idea here is that Jesus Christ, God becoming flesh, right, came to the earth, God became man, to set up his kingdom, he uh, appointed his apostles, he trained them for three and a half years, he then said go and multiply, disciple nations, right? So the point of that is he's going to make the nations his inheritance. They belong to him. So just like he had a heavenly council, he has an earthly council. Okay. And when he says, ask me to give you the nations and I will do it, in the Passion it says that the word for ask me right here can be translated as ask will of me. Interesting. The, the wealth, the warfare wealth. Can you uh, text that to me or take a picture? Okay, so here God is Elohim, and then the word divine in verse 1 is El. It's a singular noun for God, God with a little g, mighty one, and also hero. El is the most na ancient name for God, God, or deity, and it's most often used in Genesis, Job, Psalms, and Isaiah, and it's not used in some of the books at all, okay? The word counsel, divine counsel is, quote, congregation, an assembly, a band, an entourage, and a pack. So let me phrase it like this. God, the God, has taken his place in his God council. Who are the members? Gods. God is over his gods. Where we get mixed up is we think that the, the word God is an attribute of him. We think that that it's a character trait of his. But God is a function. Okay? It's a ruler. Uh, it doesn't diminish that he's the one true God. Right? I'm not saying we can worship a lot of other gods or anything like that. But what I am saying is that as his function as ruler over all things, he set up a divine council for the purpose of the nations. Okay? Now, this word council is the same word in the Greek, so we've got the Hebrew, in the Greek as the word ekklesia that's used in Matthew. So this is very interesting. Okay, so in Matthew 16, and this is why, you know, we've begun our work, and, and that is raising up ekklesias all over the United States because there's a huge difference between ecclesia and church. And, uh, you know, I've got teaching on that under Church Shift on the website if people want to dig into that. But we're going to look at uh, Matthew 16, uh, verse 15. And let me set the, um, the context here, okay? Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and they believe it was around October that this happened. During October was a pagan feast, and it was a celebration of all the gods. Where he took them was at the base of Mount Haran. Is that how it's Herman. Herman. Mount Hermon. This is where you had what was called three gates. Three gods were worshipped at the base. Okay, One of them was Pan, one of them I think was to Caesar, and one of them was Death, right? I think so. And so Jesus 
being the warrior that he is, he's not that pale guy, you know, with the hands like this and the long hair. He he was, you know, he was very stout, I'm sure, because he traveled all over the place and climbed mountains and did this and did that. Anyway, he takes his uh, his disciples to the base of the gates of hell. That's right, because Hades means yeah, death. So right. one of the gates was Hades. He takes them right into enemy territory. And he takes them to that territory at the height of a pagan festival that was so grotesque that even Romans and Greeks were a little bit hesitant to be a part of this, this scenario. Orgies, bloodletting, I mean, crazy, crazy stuff on the streets, okay? That's where he picks to take his disciples and say, hey, who do people say that I am? And so, you know, they're like, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. So then he looks at them because he always demands to know what we say that he is. And he says, who do you say that I am? So Peter, being the D.I. that he was, said, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, aha, now we're on to something. Which, by the way, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings of friends that I have. But did y'all uh, see my post today on Facebook of Michael Gunger, that former worship star, uh, a friend, former pat? well, he's still a pastor that used to be the youth pastor, his brother-in-law, said that Jesus uh, is Christ, Buddha is Christ, Mohammed is Christ, you are the Christ, everyone is the Christ. No. There's one. There is one Christ. And this revelation is so important. Let's read these verses. He said uh, in verse 16, Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. It's not church. The Greek word for church is kurios. The Greek here is ecclesia. So you might mark through if you want and put put ecclesia. Everywhere that it refers to church, you can literally mark through it and put ecclesia. King James is the one that changed the word because he wanted only one church and that was an Anglican church. Yeah. And so he didn't want people assembling outside of the, uh, the Church of England. So he had the translators that he hired translated it church. And the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he strictly told his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay, the word Peter means pebble in the Greek. The word rock is rock of Gibraltar. So when the Catholic Church, they think that the church is built on Peter... They need to look in the original language. You know, a lot of the false doctrine that's out there would be solved if you actually look in the original language because we got all this crazy stuff, right? So he's saying, okay, you're a pebble, but on this rock, I'm going to build my ecclesia. And I'm going to get into the definition of ecclesia. But here's the interesting thing. If Peter's not the rock of Gibraltar, he's a pebble, then what exactly is the rock? Kind of. It's the revelation that he's the Christ. He's the king to whom the nations belong. 
So, it's not a revelation of Jesus. A lot of New Agers have that. A lot of people that don't even believe in Jesus believe that He came and He died. They're not quite sure He's resurrected. He was a good man. Even Muhammad said He was a prophet. Okay? Some say He's a socialist. But the Christ, why is this important? Because it is the Christ who will rule all the nations at the end. So when you say that He's the Christ, you're saying that He is the one that Genesis spoke of in uh, Genesis 49, that to He whose it is. Judah, there will not depart from between your feet a scepter until Shiloh comes. Shiloh means He whose right it is to rule. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. When Jesus came, there was no Jewish king on the throne. We had an Edomite or a Dumian who was of the lineage of Esau. So for the first time in the history of Israel since they had kings, there was no Jewish king. Why? Because the king showed up. Okay? So that's why it's important. There's one ruler. Alright, now, this word council. Okay, it's ecclesia. It was a common term for a congregation, the called people or those called out or assembled in the public affairs of a free state. The body of free citizens called together by a herald, but it goes way deeper than that. Ecclesia is nowhere used of a heathen religious assembly. Ecclesia is instead a governmental term. Now this is what's fascinating. Jesus did not use a religious term to describe us. He used a governmental term to describe us. Okay? Now, it was, in Roman times, uh, a calling out and together of citizens and generals to discuss and de decide on laws, battle strategy, kingdom expansion, and other governmental affairs. To be part of an ecclesia, you had to be a male, a citizen of Rome, although it started in Greece, that's the Romans, uh, Romans adopted it, and you had to be a certain age. Ecclesias were mobile all over the Roman Empire as long as you fit that criteria, and all you needed were two to three people to form an ecclesia, and you had the full backing of Rome. Their money, their government, their military, everything. Okay? So in Matthew 18, 19 through 20, where it says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. So we are a mobile government uh, ruling council of God on earth. In fact, Back at verse uh, 19 in Matthew 16 where it says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now we've used that as far as deliverance matters, which is fine. But the word bind means uh, you declare illegal. And then loose says you declare it legal. The other phrase though where it says uh, on earth shall be bound in heaven, it's literally this. Whatever you bind on earth or declare unlawful must have already been declared unlawful in heaven. Right. Whatever you declare lawful on earth must have already been declared lawful in heaven. Lawful, not lawful. Right. Okay, here's the thing. Is sickness in heaven? Yeah. 
No. No. Is demonic oppression in heaven? No. Is poverty in heaven? No. So if it's not in heaven, it shouldn't be in your realm. And then you are anointed as a member of his council to go and destroy the works of devil just like he did by healing the sick, casting out devils, and doing good. That's, uh, um, I think, Acts 10.28. That word doing good, remember, is where we get the word philanthropy. So that's where you use your money and bless other believers and the poor. Okay? So this is very interesting stuff. So it gives you an entirely different picture of church. Because we are not designed to gather in buildings on Sunday and Wednesday and hear church bulletins and have some good music and hear a good sermon and then never take that out and impact society. In fact, a true pastor, a true teacher, evangelist, prophet, and apostle will always, always equip the saints for the work of ministry. Gatherings should be equipping stations. It's where you should come, you get the word that you need, your presence centered, presence focused. That's why we, we don't worship for just 30 minutes. We don't do five clap songs and three slow songs. It's whatever Holy Spirit says to do. If it's 53 minutes, if it's an hour and a half, it doesn't matter. Whatever He says, right? Because we are a presence-centered nation in Christ. Then, you get equipped, you get trained, you get the prophetic words you need, you get the vision of who you are, you get settled and comfortable in your destiny, and you go execute it. Leadership in the church should be an upside-down pyramid. The purpose of the leader is to support everybody else. It is not to say, oh no, you can't serve unless you support my vision first. Guess what? What's going to happen if you keep trying to go up? You're going to hit a ceiling. But true apostolic ecclesias, it's like this, the sky's the limit. There's nothing you can't do. Whatever Holy Spirit tells you, you got it. My job is to make sure you got what you need to do it. Right? So this is the whole idea of Ecclesia. Where did Jesus get this idea? You know what I mean? He could have used synagogue. He could have used anything. Why did he use earthly counsel? Instead, he chose a governmental term to describe what he is building. So, again, church shift training on our website, the Hub Apostolic Training, you can learn more. But I want to get back to the divine counsel because right there we look at the, the birthing of the earthly council, I want to go over to Psalm 89. Because remember, we're talking about God's original intent for rule. And you know, one of the, and it is, it's a pet peeve of mine. I don't like religion. I don't like leaders that keep people capped. I don't like fear-based rule. You know, I hate that stuff. People don't like messes. Well, Maybe you should have a baby. <laughs> because in order to produce new life and to raise that little critter into somebody that can be uh, powerful in society, you got to clean some poopy diapers. So the way I look at it, if you're a leader, then you might as well just get you a shovel and fix messes. Who cares if people make mistakes? or Now, I don't... Tolerate pride or selfish ambition. I'll address that. But you know what? Here's Jesus' model. 
He sends out the 12. And he, because he's like, man, I can't do all this on my own, right? So he sends out the 12. He gives them borrowed anointing, borrowed everything. They go out and they come back and they're like, even demons had to listen to us for the first time in history since man fell. And they're like super excited about that, right? Oh, yeah. And the Lord's like, yeah, that's no big deal. I love how the, the Lord always diminishes the enemy's influence. He said, while y'all were out ministering, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And then he said, in fact, I give you the exousia, the legal jurisdiction over all the dynamite power or supernatural power of the enemy. You'll be able to trample over demons and all that stuff and nothing will be able to hurt you. He said, but you know what? Don't rejoice in this. That's no big deal. He's nothing. Instead, rejoice in the fact that you're not going to hell. <laughs> Your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? So then right after that, you got them fussing over who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man, right? And so you got this fussing going on, and the Lord, you know, he takes a kid, and he's like, hey, you got to become like this little kid in order to enter heaven. Oh, okay. Then they're like, hey, Lord, we saw someone that ain't part of us ministering in your name. You know what we did? We told him he better cut that out. you got to be part of our group. The Lord's like, if they're not against us, they're for us. Don't shut them down, right? Because now we got elitism. you got to be part of our group, right, in order to be significant. He's not upset about that because when you go and you're used to the Lord, all that icky stuff comes up and he just takes it off, right? Then they said, they go to this town, they didn't want to receive the Lord. I probably would have been one of the ones like, hey, <laughs> want me to call down fire from heaven? <laughs> and a lot of it was their loyalty to we him. We might have already done it. <laughs> right. Their loyalty to him, right, was like, oh, you ain't going to treat Jesus like that. You know, it's on, you know. And he's like, guys, you, you're of the wrong spirit. You don't even know what spirit you're of. I didn't come to kill people. I came to save them. Now, a typical pastor in America would be like, you know, I think that was a really bad idea to send these guys out because since they've come back, they have been a mess. They're causing me all kinds of problems and headaches. You know what? I'm just going to cancel that. I'm going to give them 10 years of counseling, 15 years of mentorship, and once they have an angelic visitation, maybe I'll send them out, right? The Lord calls 70 and says, hey, go and do the same thing. That's his model, right? So we don't need to be worried about all that stuff. People are immature. We can walk them through it. Okay, now back in uh, uh, Psalm 89, 6-7, it says, well, actually, let me start at verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can compare to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. So here the psalmist is establishing God's supremacy as the only uncreated being who has been here forever. And he created divine beings that are in his heavenly council. So that is the divine council that I'm referring to. Now, the psalmist is giving us a direction. The skies or the heavens in the Hebrew. So who in the heavens can compare to the Lord? 
And then heavenly beings is Ben, and heavenly is El, or sons of God. So again, it's not referring to earthly humans, plus they're located in the heavens, and again, the sons of God always refers to divine beings in the Old Testament. Now, tying these two verses together, we see the psalmist referring once again to God being among his divine council of gods, a.k.a. beings. Not saying there are other gods. There's only one true created God. But what I am saying, not, uh, uncreated God, is that God created divine beings who then made up a part of his heavenly council over which he presides or presided. Now, look at Job 38, 4-7. This is interesting. He's talking to Job, and he said, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Uh, cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, here's the thing. God sitting as ruler over his divine counsel at the point of creation. That's the picture he's given. Especially the creation of mankind. Because the phrase morning stars and sons of God is referring to those divine beings. So the morning stars sang together. The sons of God shouted for joy. Who the heck are these people? The sons of God are his divine counsel. What about the morning stars? Who are those? Well, I'm going to read Isaiah 14:12 out of the New King James Version and the ESV. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. In the English Standard, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. This is a clear reference to Lucifer, right? His initial fall, which is translated day star. But in the Hebrew, it's morning star. This is referenced back up here to Job. Morning star, son of the dawn, same thing, rising up. He was a being made of precious stones and musical instruments that shone like the sun. Now we know of him today as a devil, but... Have y'all noticed that since his fall, there's only one other being that's called the morning star? That's Jesus Christ in Revelation, and I'm sure it irks him to no end. Uh, Revelation 22:16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the ecclesias. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now we know that the fall of Lucifer, he's a morning star, so he's a different type of being, was because of five I will statements. He said in verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Guys, he wanted to take over the divine council. Here's where it gets interesting. The word stars is kakab, and it means stars as in what we're used to seeing in the sky, but it was also, quote, used in idioms and metaphors often to symbolize rulership. They were also worshipped by pagans and apostate, apostate Israelites as gods. Now this is crazy. So here we got two sets of beings. We got the sons of God, and we, referred to as stars by Lucifer, 
and then we have the morning stars. Okay, I'm not sure if both beings were in the Divine Council or not, but they were at creation, and what is clear is that at the decree of creating mankind, it came from the Divine Council God called to assemble with His created sons of God. And it also appears that the morning stars can be rulers who sang together while the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation of an earthly son of God. So when God said, let us, he was talking to his divine counsel. Okay? A lot of people say it was God speaking to himself. No, he was talking to his divine counsel, his rulers. So he wanted the morning star, now the devil, his intent was to set his throne on high and set on the mount of assembly. Assembly is a different word than what we've studied in our earlier uh, uh, studies. It's moed, and it means an appointed time and place. In the Hebrew, mount of assembly identifies the meeting place of God or the gods, a.k.a. the divine council. Lucifer wanted to take it over. That's why he hates us. Because we're the earthly council. Not only did he fall, but now we have more authority than him. That's where you want to say, take that. <laughs> okay? So that's amazing. God decided to make man rulers over the devil. And yet most Christians are more scared of the devil than they are God. The devil's very good at uh, propaganda, like the Democrats and the news media. <laughs> They will start a defund the police movement with the BLM and then blame Republicans. <laughs> and people will believe that. They will say that they're for civil rights of black folks and yet they voted no every single vote back in the 60s and even before then to end slavery, to give civil rights. Zero Democrats voted for it, right? It's the same thing with the enemy. His propaganda can twist it. That's how he caused mankind to fall. He said, well, God knows that if you eat of that tree, you'll be like him. We already were. That's how he works. Whatever the devil's whispering in your heart, you got to flip it to the opposite because that's who you really are in God. The only reason he's attacking you is to try to make you believe that you're not that. So if he hits you with fear of financial lack, you flip it, you're prosperous. All your bills are paid for. If you're single, he's your husband. When you became born again, you entered into a covenant where his debt's your debt. His bills are your bills. It's kind of an unfair thing, really, if you think about it. But he loved us so much, he was willing to take that on. And so now everything that's good or bad is his to take care of. Isn't that amazing? Now, here's an interesting thought. If we take all of this together, we see that God decided to create mankind from his divine counsel and mankind was made similar or in his likeness. Later, when Adam, Adam and Eve fell, God had already, already decided, probably in his divine counsel, that he would become one of us and establish an earthly council of superhumans, a.k.a. Ecclesia. So back to Genesis, we see the decree, let us make man in our image after our likeness came from the heavenly divine counsel of God and his created beings, the sons of God, or what we might call angels. They created these created beings will later be judged because of how they ruled over the nations, uh, and we'll get to that later. Okay, now to finish up in Genesis 127 through 28, I want to get something out of the way here. 
where it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens and every living thing. Okay, I'm going to start kicking over a sacred cow. I've probably already rammed through a whole bunch of them, but let's just knock the last one over. Okay. This is the next important aspect of God's original intent. Male and female ruling together. Okay? Alright, so the word mankind is Adam. In the Hebrew, it's a masculine noun, meaning a male, but it also refers to human being or genetic, ge genetically, well, I guess so, generically the human race. It can be used to refer to a man as opposed to a woman, but it's, quote, the representative embodiment of humanity. Why is this important? Because there's a lot of doctrine that says women cannot be rulers in the church. Okay? They can't be apostles. In fact, I've taught y'all how they changed the word junia in Romans 16 to junius because the translators in 18, like 90, might be 1899, could not believe a woman could be an apostle. So they literally changed the scripture to a name that was male that didn't even exist in the Roman Empire. That's how far the enemy has gone to shut females up. Why? you got to have male and female to reproduce. That's why this whole identity thing of there's no gender, you can just identify as whatever, that's why that's happening. That's why that's coming from. And I think the church opened the door to such nonsense because the church refused to recognize the role women are supposed to play in leadership. Sure, they'll let us watch babies and babysit infants, maybe help out with youth, but you better not think that you can get up in a pulpit, right? And so that's a problem, but here it lets us know male, female, he created them. So as Christ followers, we're supposed to have a joint rulership in the church that consists of uh, genetic uh, women and genetic men. Now, how do we know that he's referring to a generalization of the human race and not just man or male? It says because God created man, male and female, he created them. The word for create is bara. It's only and only God is the subject of this verse because he's the only creator, right? Now, image here is uh, selim, and it means an image, a likeness, a statue, a model, a drawing, and a shadow. What's exciting is that in Christ we're the exact image of Jesus, where in the Old Testament they were only a shadow. Okay? But that shadow was powerful. Their assignment was to be fruitful and multiplied to fill the earth and subdue it. It's a verb that means to bring into subjection. It means to conquer and control an environment. So the earth was large. There were only two humans that existed at this point. So God told them to procreate and subdue the earth with humans. The Garden of Eden was their headquarters. Okay? And then it was supposed to, uh, and it was their ecosystem was contained there. All of their food, uh, everything they needed, intimacy with God, everything was there. God wanted them to take the Garden of Eden and expand it all over the earth. It's the exact same thing. We have the kingdom in us. That's the Garden of Eden. 
in a sim symbolic way, and we're supposed to expand that out into all sectors of society. Now, God's original intent for male and females, especially married couples, was joint rule. When Adam and Eve fell and they obeyed the serpent over God, okay, and I think that Lucifer, quite frankly, fell after mankind was created, according to Ezekiel 28. But when they fell, here's what happened. In Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of that tree in the garden? And, the, uh, and then she said, Well, we can, not only can we not eat it, we can't touch it, which God never said. Then in verses 4-5, through five, the serpent excuse me, said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, so here's how he always works. Why, why switch it up? Because it works every time. Number one, question what God said. Number two, question what you already possess. Number three, use reasoning to get you to dismiss God's warnings. That's his tactic. He does it every time because we keep falling for it. Now, here's the consequence. This wasn't God cursing man. This was like, all right, well, yay of the tree. So now this is what's going to happen. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What? What on earth? Okay, so pain in her very purpose of birthing children where before she had childbirth with no pain, now she has to have childbirth with pain, which by the way, we're no longer part of the curse. So if you have kids, you don't have to have pain anymore. I know several people that's been the case. But here's where I want to target. The phrase, desire shall be contrary, contrary to, is used in Genesis 4-7, when the Lord told Cain that sin was crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The word contrary to means toward you. Eve would desire to rule as she once did with Adam, but now he would be the ruler. Why? Because the earth was no longer a safe place for her, and she was weaker physically. In 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a, weak, as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So first, I'd like you to notice that this verse was uh, addressed to husbands. And the first admonition is for the husband to live with his wife in understanding. Show honor to her. The word understand means to be intelligent and comprehend. We're a mystery to each other. Our job is to learn how each other works, right? But the word honor, get this, is an element in the assignment of status to a person. Honor, respect, and status. It's showing honor to someone with dignity. The word weaker in the Greek pertains to physical weakness. So basically Paul was telling the husbands, be a gentleman and protect your wife. Watch over her. Defend her if necessary. This is crucial because women are co-heirs with men. So Paul was also letting them know if they didn't do that, their prayers would be hindered. Okay? Now, in the New Living Translation, it says, In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives, treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but get this, 
She is your equal partner. What? You mean, as a husband, I can't hold my wife under the thumb and have to give her permission to have lunch with her friends and dominate all the finances and get in the kitchen, woman, and cook my meal and treat her like a prostitute as a thank you? That's a Spanish people thing. Men, men are like that. It's a co-equal. It's a it's a man thing. <laughs> Why do you think I don't get married? <laughs> right. And I is white. It was never meant to be anything like that, and especially not in the kingdom of heaven, because once you're born again, there is neither male nor female. So what does that translate into? That translates into in our home, me and my husband have a proper order, right? He protects me, he guards me, he treats me with honor. My job is to respect him, to treat him, him with honor as well. I will submit myself to his voice. And he's a very good husband because he doesn't just say, you must do whatever I want you to do, woman. He like, if he ever says something that he doesn't want me to do, that means I'm probably in danger. I'm about to make a wrong decision, right? So that's how it's supposed to be. But when it comes to in the ecclesia matters, we're co-equal. I can sit here and preach, and he's free to be in his role in the kingdom of God. It doesn't have to be reversed because of our gender. And so that's how it's supposed to be. We are equal partner partners. What was lost in the garden has been restored in Christ. In the ecclesia, women are of equal rule and partners in advancing the kingdom of God just like they were in the garden pre-fall. In the home, the man is to protect his wife, and she's to accept his authority. But in the kingdom, there is not a distinction. Man, how long is this? Are we almost done? <laughs> Man, my apologies. Okay, we're almost there. I would have divided it into a part two, but I just keep talking. I'm like, have I been here like five hours? My goodness. Okay. In Galatians 3, 25 through 29, it says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So, until the Lord returns, okay, the world is unsafe. And women are physically weaker than men. The man, that man's physical strength and his authority should not be used to dishonor his wife or make her feel less than. Her, his authority should be used as a protective barrier that keeps her safe. If not, just carry a Hellcat well, or a Sid or back, a Glock. <laughs> when we look back at Peter, there's kind of a caveat, I guess you want to say. It says, treat her as you would, as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. So it tells me that any man that's treating his wife less than his prayers are hindered. And then they blame God, and they don't understand why their prayers aren't answered. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when you blame God, all you need to do is just kind of look at yourself. You know, that's we usually are the reason we're having problems. <laughs> now, what about the phrase submit? Okay, because the husband was never called to subdue or conquer the woman. Submit literally means to place an order and understanding each other's roles. Okay, that's all that means. This was God's original intent. Male, female, co-rule on the earth, expanding his kingdom outward until the earth was conquered. 
we have the same mandate to this day, but now we have to not only conquer the earth with the kingdom of heaven, but conquer his enemies. Because in Psalm 110.1, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 1 Corinthians 15.24-26 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, so... This, this is what's important to understand. Jesus is in heaven. He's in us. We are his rod. We are his scepter on the earth. Our job is to subdue his enemies. And again, the marketplace is the main way. Okay? Once we do that by being excellent at our product or service, excellent in our character, right? Our gift, our talent in the marketplace, whatever rule it is, whatever spirit he gives us, will get the attention of influencers. So it's like Paul, when they tried to arrest him again, you know, he had started his business as a tent maker with Priscilla and Aquila, and they, you know, get them before the governor, you know, and here they're doing the same thing that worked before, but this time his client was the Roman Empire. So this time when the religious people tried to get him in trouble, the guy dismissed it and completely. And then the guy that brought the charges against Paul was beat by his own friends in front of the judge. So that's kind of like Judge Judy, you know, she's sitting up there and she rules and all of a sudden the people that are with them, one guy, they start beating up on the guy that brought the charge against the other. That's kind of, it's like mayhem. It's like UFC in the courtroom. So after that, he was relevant and he was a service to rulers. And after that, he couldn't be touched. It's very interesting. We we underplay the role of business owners. Huh? Amen. Amen, sister. <laughs> All right. Man. And how wonderful it is. It is wonderful. I absolutely I, I love, love business. I love my life. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. All right. So are there any questions before I pray? I It was a little, you know, probably a little bit more, you know, scholarly stuff and getting into different things. I couldn't even touch the surface. But again, Michael Heiser has some really good things. But did you have any thoughts or did you have any questions before we pray? Well, I made myself a note and it just said outside of the garden was a place that was different than the garden. Yeah. And I just put this up, do need to expand. Would, would the garden have expanded gradually as they subdued and as they did what they were supposed to do? I think so. And you know, it's an interesting thought because if you think of the idea of the garden, everything was already made, right? They had trees they could eat. Uh, they had an ecosystem where it didn't have to rain or anything. Everything was perfect as far as uh, moisture and barometric pressure and all that stuff. That, and that was actually over the earth because they hadn't even heard of rain. You know, so when Noah's saying, hey, it's going to rain, they're all... It's kind of like, you know, when people say, hey, you ought to get into crypto. What's crypto? I don't know. <laughs> Just get into it. You know, I mean, no one really understands cryptocurrency. It was the same thing. But they were supposed to take all of the lush fruitfulness of the garden out. See, a lot of people think everything was already made. Yes, to a point, but the garden that God planted, he wanted to expand. Right. And there would be a, no need for those words subdue and dominion mm -hmm. if you had just 
if they were only meant to stay right, right there, there in the garden, right, you know, in that, however big it was, I yeah. don't know, but why, why would they have to dominate and subdue? Right. Unless it was expanded and they could go in there. And so we have people today that are in churches that they know that churches ain't the Garden of Eden. I mean, just go for a while and you'll find all kinds of crazy stuff in them. But that's supposed to expand outward, the rule of the kingdom, right? But here's something that's a very interesting thought. A lot of people think, well, I have a spiritual gift of prophecy, or I have the spiritual gift of this, blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. But it also requires you to perfect your skill. So you may have a gift, but you need to perfect your skill. So what that meant is Adam and Eve, they were already equipped to tend to the garden, right? But they had to equip others to expand it out. So it's the idea of you're given a supernatural ability, yet you must perfect it and then pass it on. So it's an interesting thing. The supernatural meets the natural and becomes super supernatural. <laughs> Supernatural natural. Super, super natural natural. <laughs> I'm getting silly now. Anybody else? All right. Well, let's pray. Father, I first want to thank you for giving them the patience for this extra long sermon this morning. And I will do better to split it into parts. But we do thank you, Father, for your word. We want to be the picture of what it is to be your ecclesia on earth. And every one of us in this room, Father, and people that are listening to this teaching, we have specific skill sets, gifts, and personalities that you have given us to expand your kingdom, to influence influencers, to use our skills in the marketplace, to basically conquer your enemies. And so, Father, I ask that you help us get in our lane to not be busybodies where we're looking at what other people are doing or trying to compare ourselves, but instead we are in our lane perfecting the skills and the anointing that you have given us to be used in very practical, pragmatic ways in society. And so, Father, I ask that you help us do that. I ask that you restore the dignity that belongs to your bride of being the ecclesia, your rule on earth. And I pray, Father, that you begin to move your people out of the mindset that church is to go to a building twice a week to hear some nice music, to pay the preacher, and to hear a nice sermon. That, Father, they're supposed to be equipping stations, apostolic centers, that get people equipped and trained to impact society. I ask that you shake us up, that you rock this thing. And I pray, Father, that when all the dust settles, there will be true apostolic training centers, true apostolic ecclesias that literally flood the United States and move outward into the world. Because, Father, we need it. If we're going to have a country that has returned to a sheep nation, we need it, and we need it quick. And so I ask that you accelerate the process. Connect us and unify us with others of like mind that see what you're doing in the earth and who could care less about church walls. Father, this morning, as a sign of our allegiance to you, we have taken the wealth of the nations through our uh, work this week, whether it's a business or an employee, and we want to give our tithes and offerings to you this morning. Father, as allegiance to you, we are not of the spirit of mammon. We love you more than we love money. And so this is a sign of our allegiance, our loyalty to you, and we ask that Jesus receive them where he is in heaven. 
and continue to give us the wisdom and give us your goals for the money that comes into the hub and to distribute it as you see fit to the poor, to the needy, to one another, and believers that have needs. We thank you so much for that. We give you honor. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, guys.